There's power in the name of Jesus because there is power in Jesus. He is the powerful one. I want to, um, with your permission, pray for my daughter-in-law this morning. Let's uh, give you a bit of context. She's um, went into the hospital yesterday and as the birth process has begun, but uh, She's early. She's um, in week 35, and so some of you will know that that's kind of a challenging time. So we're in prayer. I'm, I'm more jumpy than when uh, my own kids were born. At this crossing over from, Jeff and I are crossing over from young manhood to old manhood, Jeff. That's <laughs> where we're heading, Jeff. So I need prayer, and I think you do too, so let's... Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a great and a good and a powerful God. And um, Lord, thank you that there is nothing that's outside of your sovereign, um, your sovereign will, Father, your sovereign touch. Um, You are above all and over all. And so we thank you, Lord. We just, we come before you and we pray this morning that, that we will continue our worship in our attitude towards your word. And uh, Lord, may this uh, be an ongoing reality of our lives, that we might be living sacrifices, that we set ourselves before you and offer ourselves to you because you gave yourself to us. Christ himself became our sin offering. And Lord, we thank you so much for that, that has put us in relationship with you, the Heavenly Father, who we can go to and pray. Father, I pray for Sarah right now, and I ask that you would help her and give her um, the best of care. And Lord, that you would um, help her not to be fearful or anxious, but to have confidence in you and trust in you. And Lord, we thank you for um, your great hand of mercy and care upon us. Lord, I pray for those in our congregation who may be going through challenges that are um, um, certainly beyond them. Father, I pray that we might not be anxious, but might turn ourselves over to you and the situation over to you. I pray, Father, that you would um, now uh, laser our thoughts and our minds and our hearts on what you have to tell us today. Lord, I thank you for your incredible grace. None of us here are worthy of your favor. I'm not worthy of the least of your favor, Lord. I stand here full well knowing that. But you are a gracious God and a merciful God. You didn't save me or anyone else here because of the good works we had done or because of how magnificent we might think we are. But Father, you saved us in spite of ourselves because of how great you are. And so, Lord, we just bow before you this morning. We just offer ourselves to you. We are in in anticipation of what you want to say to us this morning from your word, Lord, and I pray that it might not be a transformation of information, but might, in fact, be transforming of our lives, that you might, by your Holy Spirit, grab hold of our lives or grab hold of our hearts, shake us with a realization of who you are and how powerful you are and who we have in Christ and that we might take advantage of everything that you have died to offer us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Without a doubt, I think you will all agree with me that the hardest part of living is suffering. Whether it's persecution or mistreatment or abuse or deprivation or loss, sickness, pain, weakness, aging, whatever it might be, The simple reality is we live with suffering. It is a fact, and it is the hardest part of living. In fact, we've been studying the book of James over the last number of weeks, and James totally centers his letter and the thesis of his letter on this theme, that God's people suffer, that God's people are in trouble and and face many troubles and trials. What I think we find a struggle with, as God's people in particular, is that if we believe that we were simply at the mercy of fate, we could somewhat emotionally walk away from all of these issues of suffering and say, c'est la vie. But, but we aren't fatalists. 
We aren't at the mercy of fate, and we know that full well. We know that we serve a powerful and an awesome and a sovereign God who overrules and rules over everything. We know that our all-powerful God just but whispers and a whole mountain of trouble swan dives into the sea. We know this. And so we find ourselves at times perplexed and and struggling and and hurting and, 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 and calling out to the Lord, Lord, you could deliver us. You could deliver me. You could take away this suffering. You could take away this abuse. You could take away this mistreatment. You could take away this horrible time I'm going through right now. I know you could. And so... So much of the scriptures is written to address the call of God's people in the center of agony and suffering to God. And so James is concluding with some thoughts, but I, I, want, to, um, I want to just share a few facts so we can orientate ourselves to the concept all over again of suffering and its implications and its reality simply put suffering is a consequent reality of living in a fallen world that's a fact that's why jesus in john 16 before he ascended to heaven before he went to the cross he said to his disciples in this world you will have trouble he just laid it on the line with them in this world you will have trouble that's a fact of what it is to live in a fallen world. We also know, fact too, that God the Father did not spare his own son, but freely gave himself up for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. What an amazing thing. Listen, this is not a God who says, oh, he pats us on the head and says, well, I really feel sorry for you suffering. It, it must be really hard. I would have no idea what it's like. No, this God, our God, in person came to be among us, and, and he absolutely experienced the excruciating, and he's the only one eligible to use that word, the excruciating pain of the cross. He knows the fullness. He knows suffering and agony to the utmost. And the Father loves us so much that he did not spare his own son suffering for us, that we might have a relationship with him, that we might have connection with the Heavenly Father That's why Jesus said, after he said, in this world you will have trouble, John 16, 33, he said, take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. Don't be discouraged. Yes, you will have trouble. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, your life will be probably filled with more question marks than exclamation marks or periods. Yes, you will have a lot of perplexity. But I have overcome the world. Take heart. And, and, and then fact three that I think we absolutely have to address and, and, and catch up with and understand in, in even a limited way is what Paul said to the Colossian church in Colossians 1.24. He said this about suffering. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you the Colossian church, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, uh, without doing a whole sermon on this, but this is, someday I better, but this this is a very important reality. Jesus' sufferings were entirely adequate for our salvation, for your salvation, and for everyone else's salvation. But he shares in his sufferings, his afflictions with us. So that the pains of Jesus to overcome the grip of sin, the grip that sin has on this world, might be firsthand advertised, showcased, in your life and in my life, to people who have never encountered the, uh, firsthand the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Uh, simply put, uh, Paul is saying that we suffer, we fill up what is still lacking 
in the advertisement of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, of how bad sin is, of how much salvation is needed, and how great God's love must have been that he would have sacrificed his son to die for us and go through all of that affliction, all of that suffering, not because we were good people, not because we loved him, but because he loved us. And in our suffering, in our continuing on on the sufferings of Jesus, the afflictions of Jesus over time, we become a living showcase, an advertisement of just how horrible fallenness is, of just how horrible sin is, of just how much we need rescue and salvation, and of how great the love of God is. And so Paul said, I rejoice that I get to do that assignment on behalf of the church. And what he means by that is people yet to be the church. And you continue that on. The story of God's people from the beginning of time right through to the last pages of Scripture is suffering, pain and struggle and affliction. And so either any way you cut it, God will not remove all of your suffering in this life. It's purposeful to glorify him and to proclaim his message, the message of love and rescue that only pain and suffering can advertise. That's why James' passion in his letter was not to suggest that suffering and trouble would go away. In fact, he says from the very beginning, my brothers and my sisters, count it all joy. Consider it all joy when you go through trials and struggles and troubles of various kinds. What he does do in this letter is teach us how to handle suffering as followers of Christ. And it is, a, it is a phenomenal letter to help each of us in our day-to-day -day walk with Jesus Christ to live a life that pleases God in the milieu of trouble. Having said that, I want to share with you this morning that as James winds up his letter, he really gives to us four final messages or four final vignettes or teachings, that in all of this challenging stuff, here's what you must do. And, and I've taught you one of them already a couple of weeks ago, but I want to review it with you very quickly. I'm going to teach you the other two more this morning, and then I'm going to save a fourth one for the week after Easter. So in case you're looking at your watches and all that and freaking out, I just want to tell you up front that we're not doing it all today, even though I'd love to. We're just doing some of it today, so just bear with me. Some of it I'm just going to wing by, because I've told you this before. Paul, uh, James has told you this before. The Word of God has told you this before. But I want to share with you the four things. And the first one is this. Well, first of all, let me read you the text. And I'm going to read the whole text from, from James 5, verse 7, right through to the end of the chapter. But we're not going to touch on all of it today. So if your Bibles are open, James chapter 5, verse 7, right through to verse 20. Be patient. Then, brothers, until the Lord's coming, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Can I get an amen? Can I get a praise the Lord for that? Don't grumble against each other. I mean, this is, this is, the, this is Palm Sunday. This is a Sunday you, you celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And he has come. And, and now when we have Palm Sunday, we are celebrating the coming again of Jesus Christ. Because he is coming again. So don't grumble against each other. I don't want to be found grumbling and griping when Jesus shows up to you. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. Because the judge is standing right at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my sisters and brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? 
He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in the faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him or her up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him or her back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is a power-packed piece of God's word. And, and so I want to share with you this morning, as I said, four final teachings, and we'll only really dig into two. And, and the first is this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In the face of trouble, what do the real do? How do the real handle suffering? They embrace patience. Wait. The Lord is coming. Wait. The, va- teaches the, the scriptures teach the value of enduring expectantly. And it will result in blessing, so hang in there. Yes, suffering is happening. Yes, trouble is around you. But, but don't give up. Take heart, Jesus says, because I'm coming to get you. I'm coming back to get you. He promises us that. He's coming. And so we're coming into that. So we, we've talked about that, and, and, and James puts a lot in that. But then he moves into something else here. He says, whatever you do. In this time of suffering and trouble and all of that, don't become discombobulated and start using God. Here he's saying here, he's talked a lot about speech and a lot about language and a lot about the tongue and everything in his, in his book here. And he's saying, listen, this is how not to use words. This is how not to use speech. This is how not to use your tongue. Please, 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 he says, do not use God. Do not use the name of God inappropriately. And by the way, he's digging back into Old Testament teaching. Once again, he's going back to, I think, his favorite chapter in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19. He's framed almost his whole letter around that. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. He's also talking about the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, where Jesus talks about the same thing about trivializing God's name. You don't trivialize God's name. You don't misuse God's name. You don't tack God's name onto your your flippant talking, hallowed be the name of the Lord, revered be the name of the Lord. And so I, I want to share to you, there's something that really is bothering me in the Christian community that I frankly think is, is something that James was addressing, and it's, cre- it's creeping its way back into our, our language. And by, by the way, it's this, stop, stop, stop using, oh my God. I can't believe Christians are doing that. I can't believe when I read text messages with OMG on the end of it. Are you kidding me? I know some of you saying, oh, it means oh my goodness or oh my gosh or whatever. Do you know what? The world looks at that and all they see is oh my God. How dare us? There's never been a generation ever that would be so flippant with the name of God. God's name is to be revered. The name of the Lord is to be used for majestic purposes, for glorifying the Lord God, for honoring him in all that we do, for invoking his name in a situation of sin and power that's required, not as some flippant tack-on, as some expletive on the end of some sort of banal language. It's ridiculous. It's horrible. I can't stand to see it. You know, I, I want Christians at Calvary to see that, and this is a no, oh my God zone. From here on, henceforth, I don't want to ever see it again. I don't want to ever hear it again. We don't use his name like that. It's no add-on to your words. It's a bad world-like habit. It's mocking of the Almighty. No wonder there's minimal power among the Christian context. We use his, abuse his name. It's not to prop up your lame promises either. So forget the I swear to God stuff. I tell you a story and then I say I swear to God. Are you kidding me? That's exactly what he's talking about here. Don't swear by heaven or by earth or by anything. Don't swear by God. I swear to God that this is true. You mean normally you aren't true? 
So you have to add that on to the end of it? No, no, no. And, and, and you know, they, they started to use in the Bible times, they said, okay, so we won't say, we won't tack God's name on, but what we'll say is I swear to heaven or I swear to earth. You know why? Because that sort of minimizes it, downgrades the promise. But it, 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 it tacks on something to our promise, and if we didn't actually use God's name, but we used I swear to heaven or I swear to earth, it sort of sounds like it's a big promise, but I can break it because I didn't use God's name. James says, how dare you? Don't you know that God made heaven and God made earth? Don't swear by anything. Don't try to prop up your lame promises. And don't add honest to God either when you say something. Don't don't claim something's going to happen and say honest to God. You don't have the authority to claim that honest to God anything you say is going to happen. You've not been given that authority. Don't use that kind of terminology. James says, let your yes be yes, and your no by no, no be no. Be people who are known as what you state is true. Your language is reliable. What you say is, is. What you say is not, is not. By the way, in the vernacular, in common lingo, I would suggest to you that this is unauthorized use of God's name, It's what I would call divine identity theft. We've not been invited to do this. Say what you mean. Do what you say. God's people in the face of suffering and trouble and trials and afflictions have to be different than everybody else around us. We need to be the kind of people whose word is reliable. Even when it hurts. Even when it's painful. Don't try to force God to give you what you want by tacking his name onto it. Above all, James said. And then he moves into what I really want to spend the majority of our morning together on. There is, by the way, he says, a right time and a right way to handle the name of the Lord. And so this third section is a really important section. He says, don't Embrace patience, don't use God, rather get God involved through prayer. This next whole section is, is, is rich and filled with talking to God. James wants us to know that suffering and sickness is a great challenge to faith and unity within any community of faith. Suffering and sickness gets to us, and we better make sure that we are handling each other and God correctly in all of these things. In all of the toughness of life, in all of the struggles of life. And so he says to us, you need to be people who use the pure language of heaven. The pure language of heaven is prayer. It's talking to God. It's the pure speech. It's a power response to adversity. It is to be people of prayer. Now James, if you know anything about his background, he was was known by the nickname of Old Camel Knees. And the reason is because apparently if you looked at his knees, they looked like camel knees. Anybody ever seen a camel knee? Man, that is one of the ugliest knees you're going to see in the face of this earth. When God made camels, he said, I'm going I'm to find a way to make the ugliest knees that I can make. And, and so he made them in camels. And, and, and James was called old camel knees because he was on his knees so much in prayer, he wrecked his knees. So I think he has something to say to us about prayer. I think he's pretty qualified to tell us something about prayer and how prayer functioned in his life and in the community of faith. And so he presses upon us this urgent plea in the face of suffering and trouble and afflictions, talk to God all the time. And, and there's really three types of prayers that he, has, that he has here in this particular section. We're only going to talk about two of those this morning with any any depth, and then we'll talk about the other uh, a couple weeks from now. But the first is this. Notice what he says in verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? Anybody in here in trouble? Got some troubles? Only a couple people? Wow, in the fir- in, you know what? In the first service, like, they were all in trouble. And, and uh, so you guys are really this way better people, I guess, than they are. But, but like, I got trouble in my life. You, I think we got trouble. You got trouble in your life. And James says, if you got trouble, if you're suffering any sort of trouble... You should pray, you should talk to God yourself, you should pray for yourself. And, and uh, by the way, this word for trouble is, is not 
It's not just, it's not sickness. It's that gut-wrenching emotion of hassles that accompany trying to live for Christ. In fact, the word is kakapatheo. Kakapatheo. I, I, I like to think of it, if we were to translate it, it's like the pathological caca of life. I, I think that's what he's really talking about here. I, I Seriously, I think that's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, I just want you to pray if you've got any of the, any of the caca of life going on. And, and by the way, if you're trying to live a life for Christ, you're in a spiritual battle. You've got all kinds of enemy forces arrayed against you. And so when you walk out on a given day and you're thinking, man, that thing is going right today. It's just like, why is everything falling apart? Why are people driving me crazy? Why is all of this going? That's the cacopathio. It's the pathological caca of life. That's what it is. And, and you're going to have that in your life because you're facing the enemy. He's trying to wreck your life. He's trying to destroy you. He's trying to ruin you. And so James says, talk to God. Pray for yourself. Because if you, oh, I can't pray for myself. That's kind of it's kind of arrogant, isn't it? It's kind of self-centered to be praying for myself. I, 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 I really can't bring myself to pray for myself. Well, the Bible says you can. The Bible invites you to. In fact, the Bible urges you to. The Bible says pray for yourself. In these circumstances, if any of you are in trouble, you need to pray. And by the way, we're praying to God to give us strength to wait for change to come or, or to endure prolonged hassle, whatever. Because remember what Jesus said? In this world you will have trouble. He didn't say you're going to get rid of it and never have it anymore. He said you will have trouble. And so you're going to have to be talking to God. And by the way, when you're talking to God, he may give you strength. He will give you strength. He will give you strength and encourage you to endure. And sometimes, you know what happens? Joy results. And because he gives you joy, that, that peace, that, you know, that passes understanding where you say, I don't know why, where this is coming from. I know where it's coming from, and so do you know where it's coming from. It's coming from above. It's coming from heaven. It's coming from the Lord. And he gives you that joy, and you pray, and you ask him to strengthen you through the troubles. And what you say to him is, Lord, please help me to live above the circumstances. Please help me to be able to disconnect emotions from how the circumstances are unfolding so that I can experience joy when I should be having sorrow. And then when that comes, James says, next phrase, when that cheer comes, sing songs of praise. It's a, there's a wonderful progression to that. And so you get to, you get to, to sing uh, and, and, and lift up your heart toward the Lord. And I know now that that. Some of you are happy in here this morning. You know why I know that? Because a few minutes ago, we were singing praises to the Lord. You, you lifted up your voices. And, and I, I don't know what, why, Pastor Steve, but for the first time ever in my life, I, I was thinking about what I was going to be preaching here, and I was thinking, I was just listening for a few moments to singing. And I, I thought to myself, what an amazing thing singing is, that, that human beings have a talk language a talk ability, and we have a sing thing. And, and, and so I was, I was listening, and it's, it's entirely different. Like if we were all talking at the same time, it would be like murmur, mumble, mumble, grumble, right? It would sound kind of bad. But when we're all singing together, it sounds wonderful. It, it sounds something, it's different. It's a cut above. It's something special. And so it is this thing that God has given us to do to praise him, to lift up his name, and to sing. And so sing with all of your hearts, he says here. If you've got trouble uh, and, you, and you pray to the Lord and he strengthens you and people are looking at you saying, I don't know how you're holding up. I don't know how you're doing it. Well, we're taking advantage of the Lord and what he has to offer for us. All the blessings he has. We find joy and hope, joy in his presence, joy in his power, joy in his unobstructed love. Isn't that what Paul taught the Romans in Romans chapter 8? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not afflictions, not trouble, not suffering, not life, not death. Nothing can separate us from the love uh, of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And, and so we think on these things, and it lifts our, 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 our hearts, and we praise him, and we sing to him. Because he is working all things for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes in Christ Jesus. He is working for our good, for the good of those who love him. And so we have these two things to do. If in trouble, pray. If we are, when we are happy, sing. 
But then he says this, is anybody sick? Any one of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. This is type two prayer. The type one prayer was to pray for yourself. Type two prayer is if you are really laid low, if you are down and out, you better call the church leaders so they can call out to God for you. If you are sick, is any one of you really, really sick? And by the way, this doesn't mean the sniffles or the normal illnesses that are fearfully and wonderfully made immune systems take care of on a regular basis. This is, you are really seriously laid low, laid down. In fact, uh, it says here you're to call out to the elders of the church to come because the picture here is you can't. You're so laid low, you can't even get up out of your sickbed. You have to call people to come to you. And they're to pray over you. The assumption is by praying over you, you must be down. You must be down and out. So, so there's this idea of being in a, some sort of sickbed. Now, I, 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 as, before I, I plunge into this, I must say to you that I come, and I've been raised in a tradition, I think, generally, that did not really embrace... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the, ap- the application necessarily of, of this particular text. And, and, um, but I say that with a certain amount of trepidation, and I'll tell you why I say that, because although I can come from a background whereby this kind of healing prayer, this kind of uh, exercise of, of faith and healing prayer and all of that d- was not necessarily um, my background, um, I, I say it with trepidation because... So many times people have come to me and they've said, you know, um, I, I, I've never heard that teaching before and, and uh, our pastor never taught us that. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, well you know what? Um, I'm only actually teaching this one day. This, this Sunday, I'm teaching it. So there's a whole bunch of people not here this Sunday. So they, they, weren't, they won't hear this. And so sometime when I, you know, God calls me home or whatever, and, and I'm not here anymore, and some other pastor comes along, you know, some people in this church are going to say, our pastor never taught us this, you know. And, 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 so, and so I just want to say that, that, you know, that's why I'm with certain trepidation. Like maybe, maybe when I was growing up, I just missed that Sunday. Okay, so maybe I just didn't hear the message. And unless you're here every Sunday, don't go around saying our pastor didn't teach us this stuff, okay? Because the only ones who can actually say that are the people who've been here forever and are here every Sunday. That's why you can't miss any Sundays. <laughs> you can't miss a Sunday. You can't afford to miss a Sunday. Not, not because, it's, because God's word is, you might miss something that you need, and you'll always miss something that you need because it's God's word. Okay, so let, let's dig in here. Here's what, I, here's what I believe is being taught here, and, and, and we'll, we'll work our way through it. James has already said in his letter, you don't have because you don't ask. And so he says, now listen, doesn't it just make sense if you're really sick, if you're really laid down low, if you're dying, that you should ask people to pray for you? Doesn't it make sense? Because if you don't ask, you're certainly not going to have. Is any one of you really sick, really going down? Then, then he better ask. He better call out to the Lord. Now, by the way, I, I just want to say about this word sick, it's different than the word in verse 13. This word for sick is used throughout the New Testament in several ways, in, in two ways, actually. In 20 times, it's used for physical sickness. 14 times, it's used for spiritual weakness. And, and I, I have, as I said, I've come out of a tradition where the, the temptation or the preference was to kind of go to the spiritual weakness thing, and it was just kind of easier, and we could say, well, if you're spiritually weak, call people, and of course, you'll get spiritually healthy. But I, I, I really don't think that's what James is talking about here. I think he's absolutely talking about physical sickness, for a number of reasons. He's already talked about trouble in verse 13. He's already talked about suffering and spiritual conflict and all of that in verse 13. He's already handled that. I, now I think he's moved into something where he's talking about spiritual sickness. You're actually laid down on your sick bed. There's a physical emphasis that's put on here. Not only that, he says you're to call the elders or call the pastors, call the shepherds. Now, my experience, uh, limited experience, but experience as a pastor in, in church ministry is that when somebody's really got a serious spiritual problem, like they're really out there sinning like crazy, the last person in the world they call is me. They don't want anything to do with me. They don't want anything to do with the shepherds or the pastors. They're like running and hiding. There's a whole lot of people not here at church today because they're hiding 
Because they're spiritually weak and sinning. That's why they're not here. They run and hide. That's what Adam and Eve did, isn't it? The first thing they did when they sinned is, all right, we got to call God. Hey, God, come. No, they ran and hid from him. So the fact that these people are actually initiating a call to the elders of the church tells me, uh, I think this is probably sickness, physical sickness and not spiritual sinfulness. Of course, in the tradition that I grew up in, for the most part, people said, oh, miracles are really for the apostolic age. And, and uh, you know, there were only three major periods of miracles that occurred, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and the prophets, and Jesus and the apostles. Well, I don't know. Before Moses, I kind of see a few miracles, like the creation of the world. I think that qualifies. I, I think the flood is kind of something, don't you? I think there's a few things going on. I think the lions getting their mouths shut and all that kind of stuff. I think there's a whole lot of things going on in the Bible miraculously. And I find it hard to believe that, oh, God closed the book on miracles. That's it. You know what? When the apostles died, God closed the book on miracles. He's no longer a miracle-working God. I don't know. I'm not really buying into that. Are you? Nah. And, and you know what? James here is writing to the church. He's writing doctrine to the church. He's writing to the scattered church, and he's writing to the church ongoing doctrine, ongoing for the next foreseeable future. By the way, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul said that the church would be given gifts. And in particular, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 30, gifts of healings. Your Bible translates it wrong most of the time. It says gift of healing. It's gifts of healings. Right? You can look it up in the original Greek if you want to. That's what it says. Gifts of healings. We read in Matthew 10, 1, that Jesus gave authority to his disciples to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And, and interestingly, when Luke is talking about the mission of the church at the very beginning of the book of Acts, he talks about all that Jesus began to do. What does that imply? That means that Jesus is going to continue to do things. And finally that this word is sick, it's the same word that Paul used for his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I don't think Paul was asking the Lord to remove some spiritual malady from him and then God would turn around and say, oh, sorry, Paul, I'm not removing it. I want you to have a sinful problem in your life. That's ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. No, I think here we have someone is on their sick bed, likely dying and they call out to Benny Hinn or Peter Popoff, as long as he's got his earphone in. No, I, I don't think so. No, I don't think so at all. In fact, there's nowhere in the New Testament where you will find anything that ever implies faith healers. You can look till you're blue in the face, and then someone better breathe some air into you, but you're not going to find anything that says faith healers. The church was given apostles evangelists, prophets, teachers, pastors. I, don't, I hear a phone, but I don't hear any faith healers in that particular text. No faith healers. No, because there weren't faith healers. There were gifts of healings to be distributed within the church as Jesus wills from time to time. So who do you call? You call the elders of the church. You call the shepherds. When the sheep are battered and bruised and hungry and wounded and sick, get their shepherd. Get their shepherds. That's what James says. Call their shepherds. The local body calls the shepherds. The representative authority of the local church. Authorized, by the way, in this particular scenario biblically, to carry the freight, to carry the weight of the name of the Lord that's going to be invoked on this particular situation, to pray over their down, to anoint them with oil. By the way, I think that anointing of oil has a couple of realities to it. It, it, has, a, it has a medicinal soothing reason. We know all of that. But it also is a point of contact that has this idea of God is present. It's symbolic of the presence of God. Symbolic of the presence of the Spirit of God. And symbolic of the idea that God comes close. So close he touches you in your infirmity. 
You remember when Elijah was called upon to heal the widow of Zarephath's son. What did he do? He fell upon him three times. He, he had died. He, fell, he actually put his body on him three times. There's this sense of over. There's this sense of contact. Now, if you call me, I'm not going to throw my body on you or anything. That's why I know that. But, but that's the picture we have here. We have this idea of, of this touch, this contact, this reminder that God, God knows about you. God is touching you. God is drawing close to you. You have become a, a special project of God. Now, um, the question arises then, we pray in the name of the Lord, we anoint the person with oil, they've called us to come, and it says the prayer offered in the faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, uh, let me just make a point here about the prayer offered in the faith. Some people think that, they, that there must be a conviction before you actually initiate this prayer, that there must be a conviction that healing will occur that before the elders should actually invoke this prayer, that there have to, has to be a special sense from them that this is going to be a healing moment, that it's actually going to take place. I, I don't really see that in the text at all. I, don't, I, don't, I, I think that's, I think that's uh, external to the text. I think this is no doubt prayer. I think this is the very thing that, that uh, James is talking about in the first chapter when he says that, that don't think if you ask something of God and you doubt that you're going to get it, this man is a double-minded person. I think what this really means is it's, you're not conflicted about human strategies versus God's power. That in, in, in every way you're not doubting because you're, you're not doubting that, that God has the ability to heal. That's the prayer of the faith. That, that rain answers to God, that drought answers to God, and disease answers to God. That's what you come. You come with the name of the Lord, a prayer that's offered in the faith, the faith in Christ, the faith in believing in him, believing that he can heal. And by the way, it doesn't say just that people who think they're going to be healed should call for prayer. He says any one of you who's laid down in his sick bed should call for prayer. Nowhere in the scriptures are we taught that, that the only time you pray to God is if you know for sure what his answer is going to be, and then you pray. Nowhere. Prayer, although prayer is very much acknowledging the sovereignty of God and his right and his will to rule over his creation, and that's what prayer is all about, and prayer is all about asking him for, for him to, to demonstrate his power and for us to, to be willing to accept what he has and all of that, but in nowhere do we only go to God in prayer when I know exactly what I'm going to ask him for is going to happen. That's hardly asking God. And, and certainly the Apostle Paul didn't do that. If, he, if, if that's what this prayer means, then Paul was totally out of the will of God to ask God to remove the thorn in the flesh, to remove the, whatever sickness he had. Because clearly God chose not to remove it. If Paul thought that the only time you actually pray to God to remove something is if it's going to be removed, then somehow Paul lacked prayer in the faith. And who of us is ready to suggest that? No, no, it's, I believe, it's I don't know who God will save, who God will heal, or who God will rescue. That's why I pray. And I ask him. I ask my heavenly father, because he's a good God, a giver of good gifts, and so I go to him. And you're saying to me, well, wait a second. It says in the text, the sick person will be made well, and the Lord will raise him up. What about that? I'm glad you asked so that we can plunge in here and, and take a look at that. I think what we're talking about here, it says, when he, I think when God answers, the reason this prayer is done is when God answers, he will answer in, in power. And here's what I believe this teaches us. He may, you, he may choose to use your life as a sign and break-in of the age to come. What do I mean by that? This word will is absolutely as it's stated, will. There is going to be a healing here. One way or the other, there's going to be a healing. Either the sick person will be made well from his malady and raised up, 
or God will come good on his promise to make this illness the last one, in which case there'll be no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying, no more death, because you'll be with the Lord. And the reason I'm so confident in being able to share this with you is what I really believe this is teaching is for two reasons. The word that's used for well and the word that's used for raised up, both of these words are evangelism words. They're salvific words. They're grace words. They're the word, it really, some of your translations may, and it will make the sick person, it will save the sick person. And that's a good translation. Because the word for well here is the word sozo. It's the word that's used for saving. It's the word that's used for salvation. It's the word that's used in James 1.21. You accept the word planted in you which can save you or can make you well or can make you whole. Because that word, sal- that word save is a, a word that has a, a generous amount of description around it. It can mean rescued. It can mean saved from affliction or from illness. It can mean restored to health even after death. It can mean preserved from eternal death. It can mean completely saved or whole and, and wholeness. And the second word that's used here will raise him up is the same word we use for resurrection, that the Lord himself will raise them up. There's a picture here of the drama of the end raising of a, a child of God to eternal life. So here's what I think is happening here in this whole well and raised up thing. This is necessarily general because this is what it means. Believers are all heading toward saved and raised up. That's what Jesus said. That's the will of God. In, in John chapter 6, that, that whom the Father has given to Jesus, all will come to him, and he will raise them up in the last day. It's the same word. It's the same terminology. But this is necessarily general because in some cases, some people in the congregation get seriously sick prematurely. And so in some cases, God may choose to advertise what he's going to do for all of us in the future in the present. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Jesus alone has the resurrection word. It's highly possible that Jesus may choose to take a sick person who's on their sick bed and say, I am going to bring into their life right now what's going to happen in the age to come. I am going to bring into their life a a rising up into wellness, which, by the way, is temporary because the last time I looked, the statistics on human death are 100%. And so the only way, by the way, that we're ever going to get to heaven is we have to at least encounter one final sickness or fatality, right? That's the only way we're going to get to heaven unless Jesus comes back first. We know that one too. And so it's possible that Jesus may choose for his own glory in this prayer to raise someone up from their sickbed and they will be a living advertisement and example to all of what God is going to do for everyone someday for all eternity. That's why I call it a break-in of the age to come. So in other words, if it isn't the final sickness and this prayer is invoked in the name of the Lord, this prayer offered, the, physical, the person will be raised up to physical wellness. If it's the final illness, he will be raised up to eternal wellness. Some of you say, well, that's no promise at all. I know this might be easy for, in fact, it's easy, it's easy for me to say, because I'm walking around, I think, well. But I'll use Paul the Apostle's words. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So in this sick bed moment, as a Christian, prayed over, I have a win-win scenario going on. Do you understand that? I'm either raised up to health temporarily and I'd be a living example to glorify Jesus Christ of what he's going to do. Or I go to be with him in heaven, raised up to wellness for good. No more mourning, no more tears, no more sickness, no more dying. To me, that's a glorious promise. For the Christian church, there is no other people in the world who have this. Only the Christian church has this, that in the direst of moments of sickness, 
You have either a Jesus who will raise you to health temporarily, or you have a Jesus who will take you to be with himself forever. There is no greater promise in all of the world than that. That's why James could offer to his congregation something amazing. Uh, time is gone, and I want to deal with the, the other parts of it next week or two weeks from now anyway. So l- let me just suffice it to say that, that it's possible that you could be on your sickbed because of sin, and we're going to deal with that. But it's only possible, if perchance. It, it doesn't mean that this sickness is always because of your sinfulness. It, otherwise, it would say, since, since he has sinned. It says, if he has sinned. It's possible. We'll look at it more in more depth a couple weeks, as I said. So you gotta, you got to face that square on. It might be because you've abused your own body. Or it might be because you've been abusing the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, some of you sleep. So the third kind of prayer here is make sure you pray for everybody. You, you, you pray for yourself, you call the elders to pray for sick people, you pray for yourself. By the way, the sick person has to call out to the elders. So finally, and finally, you know what? The last thing in terms of this suffering and this hassle in life is take sin seriously. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. Take sin seriously. Take your sin, stand against sin because it will make you sick and kill you. Father, um, we've digested a fair bit of stuff this morning, but there is a central message that comes through, and that is that suffering is here to stay in this fallen world and in our lives, but that you are our great God and you offer us the opportunity to be, to connect, to be connected to you, to embrace uh, what we have in our lives and, and to, to expect and anticipate blessing. We have this opportunity in our lives, Father, to call out to you and know that you will relieve us and help us. And, and, and Lord, um, there is no promise like these promises. These are amazing benefits to those who are your children. Father, I pray for us today. I I pray for us in tough times. I pray for us to call out to you. I pray for those who don't know you yet, Lord, and who don't have these promises, can't rely on this. You want them to have this, Lord. Would they call out to you? Would they come to you? Would they surrender their lives to you, Lord? I pray. Take sin seriously and move away from it. It kills you. It kills us. Lord, I pray that we might honor your name in all that we do and we might advertise in our being raised up your glory in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let me just say to you as we conclude this morning that what he's saying to the church that is suffering is this. Do wait. Just wait. Wait patiently on the Lord. It's a time for you to upgrade your faith. So wait on the Lord. Above all things, don't gripe and grumble against each other. Suffering and trouble can really wreck unity within a church. So don't do that. And don't use God. Don't abuse his name. You need to call on the name of the Lord. Don't force him to co-sign on lame promises of your life, but rather pray fervently. Call out to him. Involve God in all things. And then by all means, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, do the work of rescue and recovery. Go to war with sin so that the church will be strong and honoring of God and glorify him in everything. God bless you. Have a great week.